HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Underground Meats, an American producer of handcrafted salami and cured meats in Madison, Wisconsin. For more information, visit shop.undergroundfoodcollective.org or stop by their butcher shop in Madison, Wisconsin. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Cooking Issues is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Alberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the Heritage Radio Network, every Tuesday from roughly 12 to 12.45 here, as usual, with the hammer. How you doing? Good. And Jack in the booth. How you doing? Hey. It's just it's just the, it's the old school crew today. Yeah. It's, it's just the, the stars and the Jack and the, and the me. Nice, right? Stars likes it that way. No offense to Joe, she just feels like she likes it, like old school. Now, yeah. now, you're, now, stars, you have a problem with Joe. <laughs> oh man! Yeah, and uh, you just started it. And uh, uh, interesting, we brought back the uh, song by uh, Joel Gargano because Joel has a question in today. Uh, I sensed it. You sensed it. You felt it. Did Stas, felt it. Did Stas tip you off? No, she didn't. Really? All right. Uh, well, before I go in, uh, call in your questions to seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Jack has some good news. Jack, uh, you have good news? Oh, right. Yeah, good news. Um, I'm <laughs> – see, I wouldn't share this kind of personal information on the show, but Nastasia is so happy that I'm leaving Brooklyn. I'm moving to New York City. Woo! Uh, now, I, I, I like – well, here's, here's the thing that might interest – it will only actually interest people who are from New York. Those other people just, you know, bear with us for a second. But so uh, a quirk of New Yorkers is that it, when, you live in, when you live outside of New York City and you ask someone from Brooklyn – you know, are you from New York City? They'll say yes. But when you're inside the city, the city is really just Manhattan. Stas, back me up on this, right? True. Yeah. And so even even Jack, longtime Brooklyn pusher, you know, not in the you know, not in that sense, but you know, like like a booster. That's what I meant. Book Brooklyn booster. Moving to Manhattan now admits he's moving to the city. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so what's the reason, Jack? Um, an opportunity has come up. Yeah. 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 I'll leave it there. But so you're no longer going to live in a bu- 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 Bushwick. I mean, you know, I'll be here a lot, but yeah. my home will be the city. That was my first home anyway when I moved to the city and went to NYU. So yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, welcome back. Welcome back to our side of the river, Jack. Yeah. This is stuff that only makes sense to like to uh, to New Yorkers, though, right, Stas? Mm-hmm. People, you know, you know what it pisses people off who don't uh, who don't live in New York when uh, you go to their city and then they say, uh, you know, when, when are you going back? You're going. Go, I'm going back to the city, and then you give the date that you're going back to New York, and you're like, what do you mean the city? Like it's a city. Like I also live in a city. And you're like, no, no, no. I'm in LA now. I'm going back to the city next week. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. People hate that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. My wife used to hate that. In fact, she mentioned that to me uh, when we were going out like 20 years ago. I'm like, what are you talking about? And it turns out it's true. I've paid attention. People do get upset. Anyway, uh, back to uh, Joel's question. Hey, crew. First off, I finally met Harold McGee at the Harvard uh, lecture in September that you guys did. I didn't see him there. Did you see him? No, I didn't. Maybe he was there for a separate lecture. Uh, I think I creeped him out. Remember, I was that guy you read to live on the air. This is what Joel said to McGee. I can imagine McGee standing there and Joel walking up and be like, hey, remember when you read that stuff on the air? And he's like, uh, <laughs> he's like uh, oh, yeah, and I wrote that song about you too. Uh, I did get a sweet picture with Harold, uh, though, after you smoked out the lecture hall. No, so I guess it was the one we were at. Yeah. I didn't see him. Anyway. Uh, I'm, sh- I'm sure, like, M- McGee always just stands there and listens. Like, he probably didn't, like, wasn't, wasn't creeped out. Harold doesn't get creeped out by that kind of stuff. No. No. He right. has a strong, whatever it's called. Mm. All right. Uh, here are the questions. Uh, how is vinegar powder made? And if I were to make my own, what would be the best approach without the flavor becoming muted by ridiculous amounts of ensorbit? Uh, is a tray of vinegar and a dehydrator the answer? Uh, okay. So I'll, I'll hit that one first because uh, there's two questions. No, no. The way vinegar powder is commercially made is uh, through uh, spray drying. So in spray drying, what you would do is you would mix. See, the problem with vinegar is vinegar is one of the very few uh, you know acids that we eat that is volatile. That's why you can smell it so much. Uh, you know, when you put your head over a thing of vinegar, it smells like vinegar. Whereas you you know put your head over a thing of lime juice, and you're like. Smells like lime juice, but it doesn't smell like acid. You know what I mean? Uh, and when you boil vinegar, you get that like aroma above it. You're like, whoa, you know what I'm talking about? But you don't get it with something like lime or lemon or or anything like that. Uh, it's because those acids, um, you know, boil at a high enough temperature that they're fundamentally non-volatile, whereas acetic acid isn't. So. Uh, anyway, so you spray dry acetic acid uh, vinegar by mixing it with uh, a carrier, usually maltodextrin, and then uh, spraying it into a chamber. Very, you know, very the, the higher the better at a high temperature. And as it goes down, the mist goes down in the chamber, dries out, and turns into a powder. We remember we saw we went to David Michael the the flavor house and we mm-hmm. saw their spray dryer units. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. Anyway, so that's how they make the the powdered vinegar. Now powdered vinegar, and you can go on you know Modernist Pantry or Le Sanctuary anywhere Terraspice. Uh, Calustians, if you're here in the city, and buy uh, various different flavors of vinegar powder. Um, the problem is that, uh, like I say, vinegar itself is non-volatile. I mean, sorry, exact opposite. Vinegar is volatile, so the acetic acid is. So you have to. Uh, it's not very acidic, so you need to then dope the vinegar. The vinegar powder will have the flavor of whatever vinegar was there, uh, uh, malt vinegar or you know anything like that, but it's not actually very tart. So you'll need to augment it with uh, another acid to really get the tartness of the vinegar back. Now, uh, I think you could probably freeze-dry vinegar as well, and I don't know whether the acidity is maintained through the freeze-drying process because I don't know – the, uh, I don't know how acetic acid works with sublimation and freeze-drying is a sublimation procedure. Um, 
The other thing, and I looked up and people have done it, is you can uh, mix um, – you can make a sauce with vinegar in it and then dehydrate the entire sauce, right? Because then there's enough structure of other stuff in the sauce that you can dehydrate. And I saw on the internet that somebody did that with like their, their favorite buffalo wing sauce. They, they poured the buffalo wing sauce in the dehydrator, dehydrated it for two days and then powdered it. Uh, I mean I've never done it, but, but you, could, you could do that. But don't use N-Zorbit. Remember, N-Zorbit – uh, is going to be an expensive carrier to use for uh, this kind of a thing. And Zorbit is a particular type of tapioca maltodextrin that is um, made specifically to have very, very, uh, very low density. And it's used as a bulking agent. And it also is used to make powdered oils. And the reason it works is because the starch helix, right, the inside of the starch helix is relatively hydrophobic. And so fats and oils can go inside of that helix without gumming up the outside of it. So that it remains bulky and powdery, but uh, the oil is somehow stored on the inside. As soon as you add water, it breaks down and turns to, you know, it turns, you know, it debulks and turns uh, like into, into nothing, which is how the ensorbit powdered oil trick works so you can't you can't do it with uh ensorbit or at least it's not a, you know you get a cheaper form of maltodextrin to use as a bulking agent if you're going to do the dehydration on it but anyway i hope that helps uh the second question uh joel had was um uh, it's always been the kitchen rule to let Cambrose's stocks cool with the lid off. The school of thought on this is twofold. It will cool faster because there is ins- less insulation, and also the condensation built up on the lid, uh, if left on, could promote bacterial growth. I hate cooling stocks with no lids because it increases the potential for items to be dropped in them during the cooling process. Not a question about cooling techniques, but I want to know if there's any danger in slapping a lid on a hot stock and cooling it in an ice bath to room temp and then putting it in the walk-in. Well, okay. I mean, look. It... it is there any danger? So if if the product is way above the temperature that uh, of bacteria, right, and the, I don't think you're going to have a problem with the lid I'm, in, in terms of uh, bacterial contamination. If you slapped it on it when it was really hot and, you know, the, the vapors coming up would be hot, it would hit it and everything would be okay, and, you know. Presumably, that's not the real problem. The real problem is is that it takes forever and a day to cool uh, to cool stock uh, with a lid on, because um, eva- a huge amount of heat is lost through evaporative cooling. Uh, so, you know, uh, if you were to put a lid on on top of uh, stock when it's cooling, uh, it would super drastically increase the amount of time it takes the stock to get down to room temperature because um, you know the the I mean is evaporative cooling is such a large percentage of, of how how the stuff gets away when you think about it uh, like radiation very low and conduction to the air very low in terms of uh, way, ways to get rid of heat conduction even to ice water through a cambro is not super great because the cambro is not so great at heat transfer right um, you know, a metal metal container uh, in ice is good, um, but that as long as there's hot vapor coming off, you're you know very drastically cooling it, setting up a temperature gradient, setting up convection. So long as the stock is a thin thing, and really increasing the rate at which it cools. So I really think it's all about uh, rate of cooling there. Now, if you could guarantee a rate of cooling that's fast enough, then a totally sealed system would be fine. I would guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, just as a note, uh, it really is the evaporative cooling. 
Uh, I poured – Piper and I ran some tests today. We did uh, a quart container of product, which is not the same as Cambro. It's much smaller. We did a quart container of, of water with and without a lid, drastically different cooling rates. And then also I poured uh, like a teaspoon uh, or a little bit of oil on top of, of another – a third one. And it's the same as putting a lid on it. Drastically damped the uh, rate because you can't get evaporation off the, off the top if there's oil on top. I wonder whether that's why the guys in uh, – so you know in, um, you know in Tibet they put uh, like a melted yak butter on top of tea? Yeah, yeah. I've heard uh, I wonder – so a lot of it is because I was speaking to this uh, guy. I think I mentioned this in the, in the show previously is that I had a little, like an actual Sherpa as a, a driver. Like his last name was Sherpa and he was from uh, Nepal. I think I talked about it, yeah. But, and he was saying that the interesting thing about the food there is that if it doesn't have a lot of fat in it, people are like, what's wrong with you? I need to, the fat to survive, you know what I mean? Because they need to burn a lot of calories, I guess, when they're up that high. But uh, I wonder whether also you get a, like wicked evaporative cooling up there because of the low pressures. And I'm wondering whether or not the butter is an insulation effect as well to keep the tea hotter longer. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think? Yeah. You're like, I don't care. I'm talking to your brother-in-law, so. Yeah, you're talking to my brother-in-law? Yeah. On Travis, right now. Right now, while we're doing the radio show. All right, okay. Uh... Got this in, a note from uh, John Riper, friend of the show. Uh, Nastasha, another great show last week. Dave's quick riff on BLTs reminded me of an easy way to make them better. Hey, listen, John, don't get me started. BLT, you can make one different. I don't know if you're going to make it better. That's a tough way to open it. Yeah. I mean, look. In other words, like you can make a different sandwich. It's like here's what I have to say. Like, Like, you know, you make a lot of bitters like for cocktails. And it's like I can make a different. I can make a bitters that I like a lot. But I'm not going to make a better Angostura because how can you be better at being Angostura than Angostura is? You know what I'm saying? I'm waiting to see what he's got. Yeah, okay. Here we go. Uh, Junk white bread is, of course, the way to go. Yeah. Uh, Back in the days when it helped to build strong bodies 12 ways, we'd take – that's what they used to say uh, about the junk white bread. We'd take – I think Wonder Bread, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We'd take two pieces, slather on – is Wonder Bread back yet, by the way? Twinkies are back. Yeah, it's back. Really? Yeah, we did a little news piece on it. Thank God. Because I told you, because the deal is... So you like Wonder Bread, then? It's not that I like it. It has nothing, it has nothing to do with whether you like it or not. It's Wonder Bread. It, like, it needs to exist. You know what I'm saying? Like when a French person comes to the United States and you, wanna, and you want to like show them like what it meant to be a kid growing up, you get Welch's grape jelly, peanut butter of your choice. Mine would be probably Skiffy. Skippy, because although my mom was quite choosy, she did not choose Jif. Chunky, though, right? Really? I like I'm, either, I'm, but it's an interesting choice. You're only a chunky man? I'm only chunky. See, here's my feeling. Like, I like chunky, but I think if you want to go full American on someone, you got to give them – I think you got to start with the, the creamy and move into the chunky. All right. I don't know. I don't know. And it has to be Welch's grape jelly. Yeah. Right? And so you, you get the Wonder Bread, the Welch's grape jelly, and the peanut butter, and then you hand it to them. And, it, it, and what you have to say is – and you've got to remember, French people don't like Concord grapes, and they don't like peanut butter. They're, they're freaks about it. They don't like either one of those things. And, and they like good bread. And they love good bread. They hate Wonder Bread. And so, uh, and so you hand them the, 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 the sandwich, right, which is like that's – like uh, how many of those did you pound when you were growing up? Oh, too many. Stas, how about you? A lot. A lot, yeah. Like, and you can't – like kids these days, that's not America anymore because a lot of the schools, you can't bring peanut butter to anymore. But – uh, that was that's the sandwich, and and you hand it to them, and what you say to them is, "Hey, look, I don't expect you to like this, but if you don't, if you can't wrap your mind around this sandwich, then you can't wrap your mind around America. Period." And then you just walk away. You know what I mean? And then they eat it, and they're like, "This is terrible. This, uh, that's not a French accent. <laughs> that's not even French. This is uh, this is horrible. 
There you go. That's a little better. Okay. Uh, so anyway, so back to uh, back to back back to John. Okay. So back in the days when I helped build uh, Strong Bodies Twelve Ways, we take two pieces of bread, s- wonder, slather on some mayo and a couple of tomato slices, add bacon, and then instead of lettuce, you see here's a, instead of lettuce, we cook a sunny side up egg in the rendered bacon fat and slide it onto the bacon and tomatoes. When you want a sandwich that's greater than some of the part uh, of its parts, this is it. Now I agree that that might be a good sandwich, maybe even a great sandwich. I don't know that it's going to be, you know, I think it's just a different sandwich. Jack, what do you think? Yeah, it's, that's much That's much more like a bacon, egg, and cheese variation. Well, I like bacon, egg. I like, the words bacon, egg, and cheese are just, like some of the greatest words in the world. Bacon, egg, and cheese. So it's like a bacon, egg, and cheese with, with tomato. On Wonder Bread. On Wonder Bread. Do you like, a, speaking of Wonder Bread, do you like a grilled cheese sandwich with a tomato on it? Yeah, actually, that's, that's always what I get. Yeah? I do, yeah. I like a tomato. Stas probably hates that. Yeah, I don't like it so much. Really? Because why? Because it's wet? just don't like it. I but I mean, like is it the wetness? Like, I'm trying to analyze. I don't like the taste of a tomato on grilled cheese. Even like a dried tomato? Right. Don't like it. Mm, all right. All right. Uh, Tom Fisher writes in, Dear Dave, Nastasha, Jack, and Joe, sorry for not updating you last week on the eggnog. Uh, you know, they, so we had a question a couple weeks ago about a traditional eggnog that's made and then let to sit for, you know, several weeks. We got to make that soon, Stas. I know. Yeah, Piper made that weird TV one. That's terrible. Pipe, yeah, I love Piper, who works for this, you know, but uh, he puts freaking tiki bitters in everything, and he wants to tiki-fy everything. He made this eggnog, and he's like, this is really good, right? And Stas and I are both like, no, nah, it's garbage. No. It's garbage, right? Yeah. It's garbage. What Do you, what, do you remember what was in it? Uh, no. And you know, look, when it was on, on Pebble Light. It's, oh, it's hurt terrible. Oh, oh, it looked terrible. Oh, my God. So bad. Piper's come up with some really good ideas recently, though. Like, Piper did a – I don't know if we talked about it. We did it at the uh, event we did at the uh, Center for Discovery. Sour cream simple syrup, right, which is like – it's that's Piper's, like, genius invention of the, of the recently. Concord grape and vodka. That's, that's a good drink. It's good. We're going to make that one for uh, with uh, Absolute for Pernod Ricard in a couple of days. That's a good drink. It's a good drink. But the, the tiki eggnog, not so much. Although, interestingly, I did enlist Piper's help to answer this question. So let's, let's get to it. As you recall, I made a large batch of aged, aged eggnog but was concerned as it appeared to be very thin. About the consistency of whole milk, the recipe calls for it to be aged for a minimum of 21 days. Now, on day 12, the eggnog is thickened slightly to the consistency of heavy cream. I'll check in again next week to let you know how it's going, but... Just for the sake of discussion, if it did not thicken on its own, what would I do? Thanks, Tom Fisher. Uh, okay, so uh, so, so I, I talked to Piper. As you may know, Piper, who works with us and who makes terrible tiki-flavored eggnog, uh, I worked for CP Kelco, uh, which is the Carrageenan Masters, for a while. And so, um, and right off the bat, you're gonna you, you know that that carrageenan is going to be the way to go to really fix uh, a milk system up very well because carrageenan has synergistic effects with milk, so you, you don't have to use very much of it. Now, there are – so I wouldn't use things like xanthan. Even though xanthan is really easy, it's going to snot it up real quick. And eggnog's already got textural issues for me, and if you want something creamy and smooth, you don't want any of the – you don't want any kind of snot rocket feel to it, right? Stop, mm-hmm. no snot rocket. hate the snot rocket. So uh, you're going to want a carrageenan. Now, there's three different fundamental – well, there's more. But like the three carrageenans you're most likely to come in contact with are kappa carrageenan, iota carrageenan, and lambda carrageenan. Uh, And actually in cooking, you're most often just going to come up with kappa and iota. Kappa makes hard, 
uh, brittle gels. You're not going to want that in this. Iota makes kind of softer gels and is used in things like yogurts uh, to get because it, it also re- the gel resets. Now you're not looking to gel; you're looking to thicken. And the prime thickening carrageenan, the one that's used in chocolate milk, for instance, lambda carrageenan, or maybe small amounts, small, small, small amounts of iota, tiny amounts of iota. Uh, now. Piper told me about the stuff that he used to use uh, when he was working for CP Coco, and he stole – I maybe bought some. I don't know. stole some. It's called Genuvisco. They, they have such crappy names, right? Ge- who wants to crappy. put something called Genuvisco into, into, the, into, their, into their product? Anyway, Genuvisco, CSM2. C like cold, S like soluble, M like milk. So it's cold, soluble, and milk, so it doesn't need to be heated. And the good news there is you can add it after you've made your product because it doesn't need to be heated. So Genuvisco CSM2, and you're going to want to use that in the ratio of between 0.1 and 0.25%. So anywhere between uh, 1 gram per liter and uh, 2.5 grams per liter. Now the problem is is that uh, CP Coco has set up a um, a thing with Le Sanctuaire in California. So Le Sanctuaire is a distributor of CP Coco products. Uh, Piper checked, and uh, they don't have the Genuvisco CSM2 on their website. Maybe they can get it for you. The closest thing that they have is Genuvisco J-DS, which you use at even lower quantities, 0. 0.02, so two-tenths of a gram per liter. And the problem with that aside from the usage, is it's mainly iota, and I think you might have – I don't think that's cold-soluble in milk. So you can probably call CP Coco and get them to send you some as a sample or pester the sanctuary, and maybe they'll get it for you. But that's how I would uh, go. Uh, Should we take our first commercial break? We'll come right back after this commercial break with Cooking Issues. Underground Meats is an American producer of handcrafted salami and cured meats in Madison, Wisconsin. They use small farms from southwest Wisconsin to source their meat. The animals are raised on pasture for their entire lives by farmers who care about animal welfare. While Underground Meats uses European traditions, they also use ingredients from the upper Midwest to try to create new types of salamis, experimenting with both ingredients and techniques. The salamis are made using heritage breeds, mostly red wattles, tamworths, berkshires, and mule foots. Try their award-winning cured pork shoulder and goat salami. To learn more and purchase products, visit shop.undergroundfoodcollective.org or stop by their butcher shop in Madison, Wisconsin. Call your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Speaking of underground meats, I had a question in uh, from uh, Brandon uh, Hodkins saying, Hello, hammer and the nails. So I'm the nails, I guess. Yeah. You're the hammer. Mm-hmm. That means you're going to hit me over the head. I like you don't already. We had a caller quick if you want to grab that first. Oh, yeah? All right, caller. You're on the air. Hi, David. This is Johnny Kark from Memphis, Tennessee. How you doing? All right. How you doing? I'm doing good. Great. I, I had a question about... Uh, preserving lemons and using Morton's kosher salt with that. All right. I know what I found was there's like a 3% uh, sodium ferrocyanide 
if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, and 97% sodium chloride, of course. Um, and when you the sodium ferrocyanide hit is uh, meets an acid, it forms a toxic gas. Well, where, where like uh, as far as I know. Morton's kosher salt is 100% sodium chloride. Where that? Where's that other thing coming from? It's anti-caking. Let me let me let me do a quick. Uh, it would definitely be much less than that amount. But let me let me just check up. In the kosher salt, they add an anti-caking. In Morton's kosher salt, they have a anti-caking agent. Let me look it up here for you, real quick. Um. I also have another question about um, something, but go ahead. No, yeah, yeah look, uh, ask me another question, and I'm, because uh, normally, like, I would think that they would use, I mean, I've never heard of using uh, sodium ferrocyanide as a, as a, it's, it lists that on the package? No, I had to uh, search through the, um, more than the MSDS, and it would not, Found it after a long search that it contains three percent, which uh, I don't know. Which makes it affects gluten tolerance. So I don't know about that either. No, it would have to be much like if they were to put something like that in, it would have to be much, much, much lower than that. Um, but I'm gonna look. I'm definitely gonna look that up. In fact, the reason that I'm pausing as I say this is I am in the process of trying to look it up as we speak. Uh, but anyway, um, what's your what's your second question while we're while we're while we're while we're looking it up? I have uh, I'm trying to package uh, anaerobically some um, cured meats, and you know they have to be sliced thin, and I've done it just uh, in the vacuum machine and they lose color after being sliced. Anything that could help them maintain color? So you're doing like a normal... Like red meat or duck. Right, and you're doing a normal cure with uh, with uh, nitrites, vacuum packing it, and then slicing it? It's, uh, it is cured. I mean, it is brined. I'm sorry. And um, then it is uh, smoked and to internal of about 145, 150. And then then it's packaged after it cools. Right. So, I mean, color fade is a well-known problem in cured meats um, because of light. And I, years ago, had done some research on how to ameliorate color fading of cured meats. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the main thing to do is not to expose them to light. Any nitrite cured meat is going to uh, gray out on you if, you if you expose it to light. That's why, you know, when you go to the store and you see the old bacon, it's all gray. You know what I mean? Uh, because you yeah. lose the color in light. But um, I'm going to have to... It's been many, many years since I've read the the papers on um, any attempts to make the pigmentation in cured meat light fast. 
Um, I mean, if you store it in darkness, it shouldn't fade on you at all. But I don't know of a way off the top of my head to preserve the color if you're going to have it be exposed to light in a retail environment. Now, I'm sure there is because I remember reading about years ago this is a big problem that uh, meat producers have, right? And so I'm sure right. it's been solved. But I'm going to have to um, I'm going to have to put that one on the uh, I'm going to have to put that one on the on the on the side. Do some more research for you and and, uh, uh, and talk about it maybe next week when we come back. Stas, you send an email to yourself for Already next done. week. For you. Done. All right. So I'll do some research because it's something that I read about years ago, but I just don't have it on the tip of my uh, uh, head. Uh, tip of my head doesn't make any sense. Anyway. But I, like I'm interested. I, I was able to find that it is used as an anti-caking agent, but the, but the uh, it's going to have to be the back to the sign. I think it's going to have to be at a super low level, and I also see that it's added in. Um, what do you mean super low? I, I mean I I'm going to have to look up. I'm, I'm going to have to look it up. Um, E five three five sodium ferrocyanide. Uh, I don't know how much is in there, but in I'm, my studies it was. Three percent. It, maybe maybe it's 3% of the anti-caking agent, but it can't be 3%. Yeah. yeah. So then the question is what percentage of the salt is, is anti-caking agent? You see what I'm saying? So like, yeah, uh, yeah. As uh, I understood, it was, it was 97 and 3. Yeah, no, it can't possibly. 3% of That's sodium ferrocyanide, which is prussic acid. Like I think it's basically the same as prussic acid. Would be it would be d- death to us. Um, it has to be. I mean, especially when it interacts with the acid. Yeah, it's gonna. I mean, like, it's gonna have to be a much, much lower, uh, much, much lower percent. Um, but I, I'll, I'll look it up. I'll look it up and I'll, I'll tweet that one out, and then I'll also talk about it next week when I come back. Okay. Can I uh, send you email? Uh, any things I find? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, yeah, the best way for me to see it, you send an email to the the regular radio email, uh, or just tweet tweet me at at Cooking Issues, and then I can. I'm much faster because I see my tweets pretty much every day. Okay, and the email is which one? What do we use now, Stas? Just mine. We use uh what the Lopez dot Nastasha Gmail dot com. Mm-hmm. Lopez.nastasha at gmail.com. Yeah, shoot, shoot it my way, and I'll definitely take a look at it because uh, I'm interested to know how much cyanide they're allowed to put into our salt. All right. Thanks, Dave. You have a good day. All right, you too. All right, back to Brandon uh, Hawkins. He writes, uh, Hammer and the Nails. I was wondering if you have any suggestions for a really good salami maker. Thank you, Brandon from Phoenix, Arizona. Now, the question is, what do you mean by good salami maker? Now, do you mean like the people that make salami? Like a producer of salami, in which case I've never had it. You know, have, Jack, have you ever had anything from the Underground Meats Collective? Yeah, it's very good. Hey, thanks for sharing it, brother. Thanks. <laughs> we'll get you some more. Yeah, yeah. I've never tasted it. I'm sure it's good. I- I'd like to try it. I'd like to try their award-winning goat salami. Would you like to try their award-winning? Yeah, yeah I would like that. But no, nothing for us. Anyway, all right. Uh, I mean, I like here in New York, I like the Salamaria Bialese guys. I think they're really good. And uh, I mean, I think they're excellent, in fact. And, um, and I love their products. And uh, it, they, they were some of the like early – they were really early in the wave of people in America trying to make actual high-quality salumi. So a lot of people who you know in, in the past decade or so have um, started making um, salumi owe a lot to them. Because 
a lot of people learned uh, and a lot of people who like a lot of people who have taught other people have learned from them. And so, you know, they're they're one of the, you know, I think one of the people who deserve a lot of credit for what's going on in the in the US today. I mean, another early an early salami thing, although I haven't had his products was uh, Bertoli cooking by hand, which is a book we talked about before. It had a really interesting section on salumi in it. Uh, I think that's, you know, that cookbook, I don't know if people read that cookbook. Did people still read that cookbook? Does uh, does Mark like that book? I don't know. I don't know. I thought it was at the time it was a classic. I haven't read it uh, in, a, in a while. Um, uh, the uh, Chris Chris Cosentino, our friend uh, Boccaloni, makes a good product out of uh, San Francisco. Armandito Batali, Mario's dad. You've had his stuff, right? Does oh. really? Mm-mm. He has a salumi place in uh, what's it called? What's that place called? Seattle. And uh, you know, uh, good products. I've had some of his stuff. So a lot of good. But if, but if that's not what you mean, maybe you mean. Uh, equipment to make salami, in which case, for a curing box, I mean, the cheap way to go, you go to like Auburn Instruments or anyone get like a PID control for your, uh, and they have a humidity controller for your uh, for your fridge, or maybe you mean the sausage stuffer. Sausage stuffer, I really don't think there's any need to spend like a boatload of money on a sausage stuffer. I've used the really expensive ones that are like hundreds and hundreds of dollars for the five pound press, and then I've used uh, the you know eighty nine dollar one from uh, Northern Tool or Grizzly or whoever happens to be selling them, like to hunters, and. The build quality is maybe a little better on the ones that are really expensive, but they stuff sausages just the same, you know. And so, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, unless you're a pro and you're doing it every day. I mean, it's a little bit harder to sanitize uh, the crappy hunters ones because the welds aren't as good, and so it's a little bit more difficult to sanitize. But otherwise, I would just stick with the eighty-nine dollar sausage stuffer. What do you think, Stas? Sounds good. Answer the question. All mm-hmm. right. All right. Um, okay. So. Uh, Interesting thing in from Michael Natkin, and this fits in. This is like this like three things kind of fit into this uh, farm to toilet kind of movement that we're you know dealing with the uh, or if you have a composting toilet, I guess toilet to farm to toilet, right? That was what we were gonna ha- we, like. Uh, Peter Kim from the Museum of Food and Drink was joking that we we're gonna do the farm to toilet uh, um, show. Yeah. We're not. We're not gonna do that. And then I was joking with Jack that we need to start the farm to farm to toilet movement. But anyway, I think it started. The farm to toilet movement? Yeah. When? This morning? Just, just now, yeah. Yeah, just now. Farm to toilet. Okay. But Michael Nacken writes in, our, our good friend, uh, and Nastasha bought like eight copies of his book. I did. Like, well, you buy, like, bought it for all your friends? And family, yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. Uh, he wrote in and he said, uh, what, you know, what, do you, what do you make of this? A- and it was this. Go on Amazon.com and look up by Bernard Jensen, Tissue Cleaning like tissue, not like blow your nose tissue, but like your bodily tissue. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stas hates the word tissue as it as it pertains to bodily parts, right? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Tissue cleansing through bowel management. Yeah, that's Stas is making the bowel face. Tissue cleansing through bowel management, uh, and you got to go. And, and you know, and Michael's basically it's like like it's like holy crap! Take a look at this. You got to look at the cover. The cover of this ma- of this book uh, is. Uh, it's like a yin-yang thing, right? One half's in color and one half's in black and white. And the center of the yin-yang goes through the backside of like what looks to be a 10-year-old naked boy's butt with like an image of the colon like you might have inside, like like right there at the center of the yin-yang thing. And on the left side, the black and white side, it's all industrial pollution 
and like airplanes and power plants and factories. And on the right side in color is like all apple trees and sunlight and boids and all sorts of nice stuff, right? And so right off the bat, just like you look at this picture and you're like, this guy's going to be a, a nut job. And so uh, the awesome thing about it is you can look at a lot of it in the Amazon look inside thing. And so here's a choice a choice tidbit, and I appreciate uh, you know Michael bringing this to my uh, attention because this shows like here's the thing, right? It's like uh, it's like any one of a number of like like the master cleanse idiot that we spoke about before. That, that there's all these people who follow these cleansing regimens, and they're written by lunatics who have this idea that one single problem is or one single issue is the reason uh, and the solution to all of our problems, and it's part of this. Really, really pernicious magic bullet thinking. This, this, like, this, this idea, which really, really, honestly, dates back, you know, hundreds of years. But in the U.S., most prevalent since, uh, you know, Graham and uh, and kind of like this, uh, and, and then later the the sanitarium and the uh, the sanitarium movement and the um, like the water cure movement and the uh, prohibition movement, all the temperance movement, all of these kind of things stem from this uh, like font of evil, pernicious thinking that is modern humans have degenerated, right? And we've we've lost kind of touch with ourselves and our bodies, right? Uh, And so we need to get back to that by purging and cleansing ourselves of all these toxins and problems, right? And today that manifests itself in juice cleanses and other sort of BS detoxifying crap, Right, that you you hear all, all, all about you. Back in the day, it manifests itself with uh, eugenics and uh, uh, mass genocide. Uh, you know what I mean? But it's like it's all like the same problems. That there's a degeneration of. And, and by the way, people are going to say I'm being hyperbolic, but it really comes from the same. And if you read, if you go back and you read. Uh, where like a lot of these like super crazy things come from, they spring from an idea that human beings have uh, degenerated and that there is this higher earlier self. And it's also unfortunately mixed in, if you look at the history of it, mixed in with uh, good tinges of misogyny. There's usually a good dose of anti-Semitism thrown in there. Like there's all sorts of, because uh, you know back in the uh, – 1800s and early 1900s prior to the prior to Nazis when a lot of the like classic in, in quote but like well-known literature on degeneration was being written that has to go and in fact there's a guy Nordau is the classic author of uh, the book degeneration which is kind of like the cornerstone of, of uh, semi-modern uh, pseudoscientific thinking on the degeneration of human beings literally says things like uh, literally says things like uh, Impressionist painters, this because that's the era he was writing in. Impressionist painters, the reason they paint the way they do is that their eyes have degenerated and they can't see the world like you and I can see it. Like really, like stupidity on that level. Remember, this is the same time people were going around measuring people's skulls to try and prove that the uh, Northern European was uh, vastly superior based on the geometry of their skull. Right in their brain, cavity, like all, all of these sorts of things, and that you could tell what a criminal uh, was like by the bumps on their on their phrenology. But you know, all of these are part and parcel of this idea that there was this this great old thing that we've degenerated to, and the like this current feeling of uh, that right now that manifests itself in detoxing. Right, has its roots in this same sort of demented. Uh, thinking, right? And just people just don't connect the dots of where their ideas come from. So here's a quote from uh, 
and it, it, he's not talking about you know eugenics here. Although Kellogg, who was one of these guys that you know the serial guy Kellogg, was a believer in eugenics, as were a lot of these uh, uh, early, like a lot of these early people. Crazy. Anyway, here's the quote that I love. The bowel-wise person is a blessing and source of inspiration to family and associates. His cheerful disposition comes from having a vital, toxin-free body made possible by the efficient, regular, and cleansing action of a loved and well-cared-for bowel. Every person who desires the higher things in life must be aware of proper bowel management, what it is, how it works, and what is required. In so doing, you will discover many secrets of life. That's a great quote. It's really good. Yeah, yeah. So if you just get your pooper in order, like, you know, all that cancer problem you have, it's gone. Anyway, uh, thanks, Michael, for that uh, little bit of craziness. Uh, I appreciate it. I encourage all of you to go look at that crazy cover that that person has. But on the subject of poop, got two good poop stories. One, Nils Noren got back from Bali recently and went to a Kopi Luwak farm. And I hadn't realized. So Kopi Luwak is the coffee that comes up. Uh, from uh, Indonesia, and what they do is is these uh, civets, right? Which are these? Uh, as, they're called civet cats, but they're not cats. And as Piper reminded me this morning, they're weasels. They're weasels. They're weasels. Piper, like he, Piper, is a, is a hater of many animal varieties. Hates beavers. They're on in quotes the list, right? Hates weasels of any variety. Anyway, hates rodents too, as we know. We were threatening to put a woodchuck in a car with them. Remember that? Anyways. Do not threaten or do not even joke with Piper about putting a, a, a woodchuck or any form of rodent in a car that he happens to be in. He's no sense of humor about it, that guy. Mm-mm. Anyways, so I didn't realize that Kopi – so what happens is these civets, they eat the, uh, they eat the ripest, choicest coffee uh, cherries, right? And then uh, the bean, it, they digest the outer uh, hull and they poop out the bean and then you harvest the pooped out beans and – one, they only eat the ripe ones, which is good because that means you know you're only getting the ripest berries. And two, their digestive system is supposed to do something cool to the to the coffee. And there's been studies on it that show that in fact it is altered in certain ways by going through the digestive system. Anywho, so they have farms now in in Bali, and the one I think that Nils went to is a Bali Polina, and Nils brought back some Kopi Luwak for us to roast because it's a green coffee, not roasted, which is amazing. But he brought me back the special one that they don't sell. They had a, one lying around. This one, Stas, you saw it, right? No. You haven't seen it yet? No. I have a picture. I'll tweet it out. It's still in log form. Now, I don't know about anyone else listening to this program, but my hat's off to the civet for being able to like create a full-on log after eating all of that coffee. These little suckers are eating just coffee, straight coffee, and like pooping out what looks like, um, like popcorn ball logs of like coffee beans cemented together with very little else. And you know that if you and I were to eat that much coffee, like we would be set on spray like indefinitely. There wouldn't be any any log action. So anyway, I'll tweet the picture of that out. And then uh, I have to figure out – I don't have that much of it, and so I have to figure out what the best washing and roasting thing is. But we'll, we'll run through it. Maybe we'll put some, some stuff out. But I'd never seen it in log form. So that's the second poop story. And for the third poop story in our farm-to-toilet uh, edition of Cooking Issues, uh, yesterday – uh, Nastasha and Piper at the lab were making lunch, and I wasn't really paying much attention to what they were making from lunch. And uh, as, as they're eating, as they're halfway through their lunch, I walk over and I notice that they both have giant plates of uh, of greens 
and freaking Jerusalem artichokes, sunchokes. And I'm like, holy crap. Are you guys for real? And they're like, what? What? I was like, you really never read The Curious Cook, have you? They're like, well, you know, uh, parts. I was like, you haven't read The Curious Cook, have you? And they're like, no. Even though literally we have a copy of it in the office waiting for Harold McGee to come back and sign because we're going to uh, we're going to auction that off at, the, at one of the museum things, right? So uh, as McGee points out in The Curious Cook, which is a book you should all go get, uh, sunchokes are the fartiest vegetable in the freaking world. They're like the fartiest vegetable. They are so, – so they store their carbohydrates in the form of inulin, which is I believe uh, a complex chain of, of fructose. But your body can't digest this stuff, all right? And it contains a boatload of it. It's like almost, I think, like it it's, can be as much as like 40% undigestible inulin in these freaking things, right? And so when you pound it, so if you have a couple of pieces of Jerusalem artichoke in a salad, all right, that's not that much like indigestible stuff. But these guys were eating. Split a pound. Yeah, you, ate, you split, you ate a half a pound a piece of completely insoluble freaking inulin fiber. Like the fart machines. At five o'clock, we were like, well, I don't feel so good. And then we were running outside and like, you know, doing our business. And then an hour later, we were like, F it. We're just going to do just, it in front of each other. Just going just gonna to roll with it. <laughs> yeah. And I, hey, people, I was the benefic- beneficiary of all this. But <laughs> as it says in, uh, in the introduction to chapter five of uh, The Curious Cook, which I'll read from, taking the wind out of the sun root. It is strange that among North America's meager handful of contributions to the modern table, two of them should prove to be of such mixed, mixed, mixed blessings. One is the persimmons, whose delights and shortcomings are described in Chapter 9. I'll leave – you have to go buy the book. Uh, you can get it on BookFinder. McGee, republish this sucker. Anyway, uh, the other is the so-called Jerusalem artichoke. Uh, actually, the snappily crisp tuber of a sunflower, this vegetable does develop a mild flavor reminiscent of artichokes when it's cooked. After centuries of neglect, it's showing up again in the markets and being grown or growing itself in home gardens. Unfortunately, the Jerusalem artichoke surpasses even dry beans in its power to cause flatulence. Not all cookbooks point this out, and those that do offer few preventative tips. I've tracked down a couple of simple procedures that tone down the Jerusalem artichoke significantly. I also found that the usual explanation for the vegetable's peculiar name was demolished decades ago. There's long been a plausible alternative, and the time has come to dust it off. Well, I won't spoil because wow. you should go read what the, you, you got to go read this section so i won't spoil about all, all the history that mcgee goes into but he says that and it's interesting because did you know this jack i don't know if you knew this a well-known fact though if you if you know mcgee mcgee's career as a food writer started with the beat with the farting bean problem did you know that i did know that because we did an evolutionary's uh, life story on him and that's that's pretty much how it opened yeah. yeah, all right. There you go. Fascinating. So McGee is a you know he's uh, he he was at uh, Caltech and then he went to Yale for uh, for graduate in uh, in literature I guess and he's looking to write something he's right and uh, someone asked him about like why do beans make you fart and so he, he researches that and that that was the genesis of on food and cooking was that and then uh, and then later in Curious Cook he tackled the even fartier problem of Jerusalem artichokes and if Nastasha and Piper had only read that section they probably would have a not eaten quite as much of it 
and B, they would have followed McGee's suggestions to slice it thinly and boil it. Well, for it's 50- better we found out with each other because I told Piper you can never make that for a girl for dinner and expect her to stay over. So. Oh, what if he had done that? I know. So it's good that it happened. Holy yeah. crap. And I asked him whether it was a painful sort of farty, and he said it was a painful sort of farty. Because it blows you up like a balloon. Yeah. Anywho, so slice it thin and uh, boil it for like 15 minutes, McGee says. That reduces it. Or, McGee says, cook it for a very long time, like 24 hours in a very low oven. It turns black and sweet because the inulin's broken down into fructose, and then it's digestible. I sent McGee a text uh, earlier today. Uh, I haven't heard back yet whether or not he's uh, ever tested doing the Jerusalem artichoke in a circulator, but I haven't heard back, so we'll see. Farm to toilet edition of cooking issues. Um, yeah, yeah. Hey, before the show's up too, we were wondering uh, at the station if you had to make a cocktail for a Thanksgiving dinner, what would you go with? Me, you, uh, and Nastasia for that matter. When? Well, what point in the evening am I having it? This would be like the 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 pre dinner cocktail. Oh, carbonated. Ah, carbonated cocktail. Pre dinner, I like something with bubbles. Like, uh, I mean. I don't want something really heavy that's going to drag me down. I, I I like starting with a carbonated beverage. What about you, Stas? What would you? I mean, she's like champagne, the yeah. best cocktail in the world, yeah. champagne. Uh, but you're thinking about like seasonal stuff. Piper's got that red hot poker uh, squash drink, but I wouldn't do that before the Thanksgiving meal. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd probably go. I'm trying to think of something that would be seasonal at that time. I don't know. We I don't can know. Think about it for next week. We have. Two weeks of Thanksgiving? All right. Oh, and by the way, speaking of, you still have time to order your Heritage Turkey from Heritage Meats. Our, our, what are they? What, what are, what's our relationship to them? I mean, obviously, Patrick Martin's. Our founders. Our founder. So, but the meat company is our founders? Heritage Foods USA founded the radio station. Yeah. So, our, our founding fathers. Yeah. There you go. All right. Um, but oh, I have something on cocktails I can get to in a minute. But first, uh, I got something in from Robert. I lax Esquire about the uh, about the uh, Mr. Softy thing we were talking about last week. Um, dear Dave, uh, Nastasha, and gang, uh, a sincere thank you for the fantastic show, which has introduced me to many great new techniques and has improved my cooking skills and enjoyment immeasurably. That's nice. Now, this is this guy knows what he's talking about because here's what he says: As a former good humor man, he had a, he was a driver of a good humor truck, which is awesome. As a former good humor man and now an amateur ice cream maker and enthusiastic ice cream eater, I share your interest in Mr. Softy, which I consider to be a fantastic product. Although it is inexpensive and without pretense, it tastes delicious, and I prefer it to many of the more artisanal soft serve offerings now available. When I drove a good humor truck 25 years ago while I was in college, the sound of the Mr. Softy truck meant I would have to find another neighborhood to peddle my wares that day. Good humor's offerings are simply no competition for the Mr. Softy. Boom. That's strong. That's the guy's like, I was selling the good humor. And when the Mr. Softy truck came, but here's the problem. I have noticed that the problem of Mr. Softy product variability. Oh, uh, anyway, as you noted last week, Mr. Softy machines allow for variable overrun and provide a way for unscrupulous Mr. Softy drivers to sometimes provide more air than ice cream. Through some investigation, he's a lawyer, so he's like investigating this stuff, which I love. He's a fraud lawyer, which is amazing. I love this crap. I discovered that the actual problem of Mr. Softy variability has a different explanation uh, and a kind of more sinister. So he's going around, and he was noticing that some ones were really crappy. And it wasn't just that it was lighter, but that the texture was wrong. 
right? It was a bad texture thing. So he looks up that that he looks up that the Mr. Softy's telephone number, right? And he beats his way and and as he notes, right? When I remember where I told you I went to their to their warehouse, their their supply depot, and they're not used to human beings at all. Like it's just not what they do. And somehow, like at the time, I was I don't know, I guess in my late twenties or something. At the time, they were like. And they just let me buy the Mr. Softy mix. Uh, so he similarly, like, somehow, like, waded his uh, way through it and got to the president of Mr. Softy, right? And um, the guy knew about it. Like, so, and, like, he made it through, I guess, because he was like, listen, I, you know, I grew up eating my whole life. I love Mr. Softy. I even used to be your competitor and I quit because your product is so much better than what I was selling, you know? So he gets through to the president. And, the, and Mr. Softy knows what the problem is. And here it is. Ready? The president, Mr. Softy, explained to me that the trucks are owned by franchisees, many of whom hire drivers to run them. The franchisees keep track of the cash receipts they expect to receive from those drivers by reference to the amount of Mr. Softy mix that is used. A given amount of mix makes an expected number of servings and an expected range of cash receipts. The problem, he explained, is that some drivers try to hide cash from their bosses by stretching the Mr. Softy mix by cutting it with plain milk and then pocket the extra cash. The weasels! The result is a substandard product for the consumer, less cash for the franchisee, and less royalty for Mr. Softy. He didn't elaborate, but he told me that they were taking measures to tackle this problem. Anyway, I thought you would find this interesting. I do, Robert. It's extremely interesting. I detest food fraud in any form, whether it's by messing with the over. I'd say, actually, I'd rather than mess with the overrun because at least then I got a light product and I know that the guy shafted me. If they add milk, then you think, as you did, that Mr. Softy's quality is just going downhill. It's a huge problem. You know what I mean? And, like, it's like, it's so old school. It's so old school fraud. It's like, you know, watering vodka or, or you know, you know, adultering milk back in the old days. It's like, that really pisses me off. That pisses me the hell off. Uh, I don't know how they're going to fix that, but they should, you know, I guess they have to change how they're struck, whatever. Anyway, he also says, it would be great if you could send a shout out to my good friend and your former caller, Steve from Moscow, who turned me on to the show and which uh, gives us weekly reason to keep in touch and discuss the wisdom we learn from each podcast. Thanks and best regards, Rob. Well, thank you. And on the way out, I'll notice this a couple weeks ago, uh, we were talking about eggplants and uh, how they are kept uh, super blue in Japanese uh, pickles. And I got a note in from Jens Genshin who says that they're blue because literally in Japan they put iron eggplants. Eggplants, little eggplant figures, figures? Little like eggplants made of iron into the pickling medium when they do it, and that's what causes them to uh, stay blue. Thanks, Jen. Jens, rather. Iron eggplants, cooking issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thank you.